Well, good morning, New Life Church. Thank you to the worship team this morning. Wonderful singing again. Um, wonderful worship. Let's continue our worship in the Word. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. So as you know, we are currently going through the series Letters to Seven Churches from Revelation 1 to 3. And here the Lord has, or Lord is addressing seven local churches in Asia Minor. And today we examine the six of these letters and learn about Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia. So the church in Philadelphia was one that had a, had a tremendous impact on their community in that day. And of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, Philadelphia was the longest lasting city that remained until the 14th century. So let's read Christ's message to Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray before we go into the word this morning. Father, thank you this morning for the spirit of worship amongst us. Thank you, Father, for the way the Spirit has been preparing our hearts through the reading of your word, through the singing of your word, even through the way that we have been greeting each other and fellowshipping already. Thank you for this preparation for us to, to hear from you. And I do pray, Lord, that our hearts would be ready to hear this morning. Our hearts would have ears to hear. Pray, Father, that your Spirit would instruct us Pray, Lord, that your Spirit would, would teach us, and that he would help us understand the message that you have for us this morning. Thank you for all that you've been teaching us already as a church, and what you require from us, and how we are to be faithful. And thank you right here for this wonderful testimony of the church in Philadelphia, a church that was indeed faithful. Lord, our desire is to be a faithful church. Our desire, Lord, is to be a church that has 
an influence in the community that is able to be affecting the community with, with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, despite the, the problems that exist, despite the opposition and the persecution that we may face. So Lord, I pray that you would settle our hearts this morning as we, as we come to you, to the foot of the cross. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to put the, the worries and the, the troubles of the world, of the weak, aside, that we may concentrate upon you and hear from you, Father God. We are grateful, Lord, for your word. We know, Lord, that your word is living. So we do pray today that your word would speak to us, that it would convict us where we need to be convicted, and that it would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Above all, Lord, we pray that you would receive the glory from all that we do here and all that is said here this morning. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So as I was preparing this message, I did a random search on Google for the perfect church. I just put in the words, perfect church, and um, I found this poem. So as a way of introduction, I want to read this poem to you, which I think is a wonderful introduction to this Philadelphia church. So it's entitled The Perfect Church. If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'd spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest joining in, you'd spoil the masterpiece. If you should find that perfect church, then don't ever dare to tread upon such holy ground, you'd be a misfit there. But since no perfect church exists, made of perfect men, let's cease looking for that church and love the church we're in. Of course, it's not the perfect church that's simple to discern, but you and I and all of us could cause the tide to turn. What fools are we to flee the past in that fruitful search to find at last where problems loom, God proudly builds his church. Of course, no church in this world is perfect. Um, John MacArthur says that occasionally he is asked by young men seeking a church to pastor if he knows of a church without any problems. And his response to them is, if I did, I wouldn't tell you because you'd go there and spoil it. His point is that there are no perfect churches, and all churches have problems. There is no church that does not have any problems. And the reason that all churches have problems is because they are made up of sinful people, people who, who fall into sin, people who are imperfect. And the church is not a place for, for perfection. The church is not a place for people with no weaknesses. Um, it is a fellowship of those who are aware of their weaknesses, and long for the strength and the grace of God to fill their lives. It's a kind of a spiritual hospital for those who know they are spiritually sick and needy. And the church in Philadelphia had its fair share of struggles, fair share of problems. They were a small, struggling church in a secular city, in a very pagan culture. 
And they had no people in their congregation who had positions of power. There were no members who had positions of any influence um, in the community or the government. And they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of resources either. But yet, they are commended by our Lord for their faithfulness. And only the church in Philadelphia, along with the church in Smyrna, receive no rebuke from our Lord. And our prayer should be that our church be characterized by the faithfulness of the Philadelphians. So let us study together and learn what made them such a faithful church. The title of my message is Philadelphia, the Faithful Church. So first, let's look at the address in verse 7. Commentator John Stott, he describes Philadelphia like this. He says, the town of Philadelphia was situated 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was the next town which the postman would reach on his circular tour of the seven churches of Asia. Like Sardis, it was in the fertile region of Lydia. It stood on the banks of the river Cogamus, and the district was dangerously volcanic. The ancient historian Strabo called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. Earth tremors were frequent, and it caused many former inhabitants to leave the city for a safer home. And the severe earthquake of AD 17, which devastated Sardis, almost completely demolished Philadelphia as well. But yet, the church thrived. The church thrived. So notice, secondly, the description that the Lord gives of himself in verse 7. For the first time here in the letters to the seven churches, Christ's description of himself is not from Revelation chapter 1, which, which he normally did. Instead, his description is drawn from the Old Testament. First, Christ said in verse 7, These are the words of him who is holy and true. So God the Father is described as holy and true. Um, in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, we see that description there. But so like his Father, Christ may be trusted to keep his word. Christ is holy and true. Um, Second, Christ is the one who holds the key of David. In Revelation 1.18, Christ is the resurrected and glorified one who is said to have the keys of death and Hades. Christ is the one who can unlock the gates of, of death and lead us into eternal life. But there's a reference there to the key of David. And that's significant. What is the meaning of the key of David? Well, this is an expression that is found in Isaiah chapter 22. And there in the passage, the Lord rebukes the current temple treasurer, whose name is Shebna, for his corrupt practices. And he assures Shebna of his judgment that awaits, and he appoints a successor by the name of Eliakim. He then gives the following promise to Eliakim. He says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. That's in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And simply put, no one could come to worship the Father without Eliakim's permission. That's what the Lord was saying. Or to put it another way, no one could come to worship the Father without 
coming through the temple where Eliakim was in charge of. And the Lord is now applying this to himself. The Lord is applying this to himself. And the Lord is strongly claiming that no one can worship the Father except through him. In biblical language, we know John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's, in essence, what Jesus is saying here. This description is applied to Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. And it speaks of his omnipotence. Um, What he does can never be overturned by someone else because nobody else is more powerful than than he is. He is the, the one who is supremely omnipotent. And we know that this church had kept Christ's word. We know this church had not denied his name. They understood the the character of Christ. They understood that he was supremely omnipotent. And they pursued the same character in their own lives. Jesus Christ is the one who has supreme authority. He is sovereign. And it is obvious from the testimony of the Philadelphians here that they understood this. They recognized this and they submitted to his supreme authority. They obeyed the Lord in spite of the the persecutions that they faced, in spite of the the suffering that they went through. And a promise contained in his words is that Jesus Christ will always bless those churches that acknowledge that he is the only way to the Father. And that may sound obvious, but it needs to be said because not every church does this. You know, in 2010... I had the privilege of visiting Calcutta and Serampur, where the famous uh, English missionary William Carey ministered for most of his life. And we got to the seminary that he started, as well as the churches we got to see that he planted. We stepped into the same room where he translated the Bible, or portions of the Bible, into 40 different Indian languages. It was a wonderful experience. But while we were visiting the, the museum that was attached to the seminary, we saw and heard a crowd of people gathering for a meeting in the main hall. And so we went to inquire, and uh, we were invited to, to listen to the Archbishop of Canterbury address the students of the Serampore University. And afterwards, he gave some time for questions, and the press were there. And one of the, the students asked him this question. How does Christianity believe in pluralism when it says that the only way to salvation is through Christ? And the archbishop's response was printed by reporters from from the national newspaper there, the Times of India. And this is what he said. This is what has been recorded. Every religion has its own way to God. And so there is no one path to God. Let me repeat that. Every religion has its own way to God, and so there is no one path to God. I mean, that is shocking. That is shocking. But these types of statements and, and teachings are sadly common to hear in our, in our day and age. In 2015, Pope Francis stated that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. 
This is simply not true. Muslims, much like the the Jews that are mentioned here in our text, they claim to be the true children of God. I mean, after all, they were the line of Abraham, whom God had chosen in the Old Testament, but there was a major problem. Though the Jews in the city claimed to be the true people of God, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There was a clear problem here. Thirdly, notice the commendation. The commendation here in verse 8. In the city of Philadelphia, there were many Jews. One commentator says there were over 80,000 Jews that, that lived in the city. And these Jews made life very difficult for the followers of Jesus Christ. And the Jews, of course, they refused to acknowledge that Christ was the Messiah. They claimed to be the true children of God, but but they were not. Their claim was based on their biology rather than on having faith that Abraham, the same faith that Abraham had demonstrated. So they had become a synagogue of Satan, and those are the words that, that Jesus uses here. Just like the, the fellow Jews in, in Smyrna, which we learnt about in Revelation chapter 2. They were, they were liars. They had rejected Christ. They had rejected the followers of Christ because they had been deceived by Satan. So it's very likely that this Jewish synagogue had probably excommunicated um, other followers of Jesus that used to worship in the, the temple. They had closed all their doors to those who had converted to Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. In verse 8 there, we see in the second part, Christ said he knew that the Philadelphian church had little strength. The church in Philadelphia was a small congregation. And this was not a negative comment on their their feebleness, but it's a commendation, despite their little strength. Um, They were having little resources. They had few numbers. But Christ said that the church in Philadelphia had kept my word and had not denied my name. In addition, we read in verse 10, they had kept Christ's command to endure patiently. The church in Philadelphia did not surrender to the secular culture. The church in Philadelphia did not surrender to the pagan culture around them. This small church was marked by obedience. It was marked by faithfulness. And it was marked by perseverance. And this is a high praise from Christ himself. Let's look at these promises here in Christ's commendation. There's there's four specific promises. First, Christ placed before the believers an open door that no one would shut. In verse 8, in Revelation chapter 4, the apostle John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Well, clearly this refers to the, the entrance into heaven. And normally we have a picture of, of, of Peter or Paul at these gates. I'm not sure why Peter and Paul are at these gates. You don't see that in the scriptures. Here we see this entrance into heaven. And Christ was saying that while the synagogues had closed their doors to Christians, on followers of Jesus on this earth, no one could deny the Philadelphian Christians entry into heaven. Nobody had the power to do that. It was Christ 
who held the key of David. And he would open the door to heaven for these true believers. And no one would be able to, to shut it. And this was a wonderful word of encouragement. Um, they were a struggling church. They needed this encouragement. Um, no one would be able to, to shut it. They were aware of their weaknesses. They were aware of their, their feebleness as a church, of their frailties. And they were aware that in the eyes of the world, they were nothing. They had no influence in the world. Remember that. They were mocked. They were, they were scorned. And there was imminent persecution that they knew and felt was coming their way. But they've been given a door through which they would be able to enter. And nobody would be able to shut it. They have entered into the kingdom of God. These people were truly born again. They had true faith. And nobody could take that away from them. They had come to fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And nobody could take that away from them. They've come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And nothing could separate them from the love of God. We see the second promise here. Christ said he would make the Jews come and fall down at the believer's feet and acknowledge that he loved them. And again, this is a picture of, of ancient times. The picture is that of the Jews, of, of captives from an ancient battlefield who were, who were forced to kneel down and um, obviously pay their obedience to their captors. And remember, there were there were many Orthodox Jews in Philadelphia at this time. And it was these Orthodox Jews who would one day bow before the believers and admit that God loves the church. God loves the church. They would be vindicated. And in essence, as these unbelieving Jews bow down before the church, they are actually bowing down before Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And these people would acknowledge that Christ really is the Messiah sent by God. And eventually their faithfulness would be vindicated. And his true children, of course, are those who believe that Christ is the Messiah. And all acknowledge the sovereign lordship of Christ. And this is the same promise that Paul gives in, in Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? Verse 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. See the third promise here. Christ said that because they had kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. We see that in verse 10. Now that phrase there, word about patient endurance, is translated in the King James Version as word of my patience, which simply means my gospel word. And it is called this because it teaches patience endurance. The gospel teaches us to endure because we have an expectant hope that Christ is returning. And this is what the Lord was referring to here. There was an hour of trial. We see that word mentioned there, here in this verse. Um, and of course, that, that is debated by various schools of eschatology. What does it mean, this hour of, of trial? There was an hour of trial that they would face. But the point is, whenever that would happen, the point is, 
that the Christians in Philadelphia had remained faithful to the gospel despite this hour of trial. Despite this hour of trial, they remained faithful to the gospel. Despite the persecutions, despite the trials that they were to face. And because they had been faithful, God promised these believers that he would preserve them from the wrath to come. He would, pre- he would preserve them from this coming wrath because of their faithfulness to his gospel, to his gospel. Remember I said earlier that when the city of Philadelphia was founded, it, it aspired to be a, a Greek missionary city like the Athenians in their culture, in their language. They wanted to promote their, their culture and language. But the church... The church here in Philadelphia had a similar vision, not to promote the culture, but the church wanted to be known for its love for Christ and the gospel. They were faithful to the mission that God had given to them. They were intentional about their strategy. As small as they were, they wanted to be known for their love for the gospel. They wanted to promote the gospel, and they were faithful to that, despite the hardships they faced, despite the lack of resources they had, despite the little strength that they had, they were faithful to the gospel. The fourth promise here, Christ talks about in verse 11. He says that I am coming soon. It's not the first time in the book of Revelation that that expression occurs. Um, It occurs again. It occurs again right at the end of the book of Revelation. But it is intended not to discourage him, not to frighten him. It's intended to encourage the Christians to persevere. And this is obviously the next great redemptive event that we all have to look forward towards. I hope it encourages you. I hope it's not something that you are afraid of, something that that frightens you. We read in the Bible of all the other redemptive events that, that have taken place. We read about the flood. We read about the, the exodus. We read about the, the exile. We read about the incarnation. We read about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But you know, the next great redemptive event is the coming of Jesus. One day, Christ will return and he will receive his bride and he will take her to be with him for all eternity. And until then, the the church needs to remain faithful. The church needs to remain vigilant. The church needs to await. The church needs to be alive, actively doing the work that the Lord has called us to do while we expectantly wait for the Lord's return. Look at the fourth point this morning. In verse 11, the command the command. Christ says in the second part of verse 11, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is the imperative here in the passage. This is the command the Lord gives the church. He says, hold on, hold on. Even though you have little strength, hold on. Even though it's difficult for you, hold on. Heaven is right there. The door is open. You will enter and nothing can stop you from doing that. Hold on. Persevere, he says. 
You cannot lose your salvation. Nobody can take that away. But he does warn them that they could lose their rewards if they were unfaithful. And that's implied here in the passage. If they fall into sin, like the other churches had done, they would, re- they would lose these rewards that were, were waiting for them. Remember, this church is small. This church is poor. Um, they're facing the hostility of this Roman and, and Greek empire. But Jesus was telling them, hold on, I care for you. He's encouraging them, that he, he loves them. And he urges them to remain faithful. You know, folks, maybe you've thought this. Maybe I have. Maybe you haven't. But have you ever wondered, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your struggles, if God really cares for you? Have you ever put those words together in a sentence? Have you uttered those those words? Perhaps you found yourself shocked. Perhaps, you know, even taken aback that you would even think these words. Does Jesus love me? That the Lord Jesus who died for us, who has shed his blood for us, who went to Calvary for us, who endured the the wrath of God for us, does does he care for me? Have you thought those words? And often we do not understand why he does what he does. We may not understand his timetable. We may not understand why he He takes somebody sooner and lets others live longer. We don't understand why he brings somebody to himself and he wraps his arms around others and not not someone else. And we wonder, does he care? The scriptures are, are teaching us today that yes, he does care. The scriptures are showing us, of course he cares. He cares for his children. He loves his children. He cares for his sheep. He cares for all of his sheep. He is the the great shepherd. And this little church in Philadelphia, even though they were a small little flock, an insignificant church that nobody really knew about, they didn't have like a great impact like the Thessalonian church did. The Lord cared for them. And the Lord loved them because of their faithfulness. And the Lord says, I'm coming again. The Lord is saying to us, I am coming soon. My dear is, I will bring you to myself, and I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. These were encouraging words. Look at this promise here in verse 12, my fifth point this morning. The temple of my God is mentioned there. I will make you a temple of my God. You know, in, the, in Solomon's temple, there were two main pillars, and one was called uh, Jachin, and the meaning of that I will establish. So the one pillar was called I will establish. And the other pillar was called Boaz, meaning strength. So there were, there were two mighty bronze pillars um, in the temple. And can you imagine being one of these temples? I mean, I would, I would love to be just a little pebble, a little piece of sand in that temple to see the Lord's glory being displayed I mean, that, 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 would, that would be wonderful. But this weak, frightened, fledgling, small church, perhaps facing the onslaught of this Roman Empire, and the Lord is saying, I will make you a pillar in my temple. 
I will make you, I will put your name, I will put the name of my God and the name of the new Jerusalem and my own new name upon you. This is not the mark of the beast, not 666, but the name of God and the name of Jesus as, as Lord. And he's telling this little church that they need, to not, they need to have a different perspective. They need to look at the eternal perspective here. Not look at the things that are around them. Not to be intimidated by their circumstances. Look at what I have for you. And here on this earth, we don't have this, this city to look forward to. And we are told to seek the one which is to come. Whose builder and maker is God. Look up, he says to them. Look ahead, he says to them. Look forward to what I have for you. And he's telling them, eyes have not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. He's preparing us. He's preparing this church for a new order of, of existence that will take place. A new heaven. A new earth in which righteousness will dwell, in which righteousness will reign, where there is no more sin, where there is no more sorrow, where there is perfect peace, where we will have perfect peace with God. Do you see what, what this is saying here? This is a word of encouragement. It's a word of assurance. It's a word of security to this church that is struggling. And he's saying to them, who can separate me, who can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Not life, not death, not angels, not principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all the created order can separate us from the love of God. It needs to encourage us, folks. Thank you, Brian. Amen. It needs to encourage us. And Christ has assured us of salvation. And he's assured us of the citizenship which we will be partakers of. He has paid the penalty for our sin. We are free to enter into heaven. He looks at us as redeemed, no longer as rebels, but as redeemed children of God. And we are able to enter into this eternal bliss. And all who believe that he is God's son... And all who've repented of their, their sin will receive this blessing that Christ has promised to the church in Philadelphia. And lastly, in conclusion, look at, the, look at the appeal as we bring this together in verse 13. Christ said in verse 13, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ appealed to churches, sorry, he appealed to the Christians in this church to pay attention to what he is saying. To what he is saying to them through the Spirit of God. And there are two lessons here that we can draw from this text. Christ measures every church, not by how successful they are in their growth. He doesn't measure us by how many people there are, by how many programs we have. But rather, by how faithful we have been to him. Christ's evaluation of every church, even today, is the same. Christ's evaluation of, of every church member is the same. He doesn't have 
different standards for different people. He measures us according to our faithfulness to Him. To our faithfulness to Him. And notice, secondly, God calls us to remain faithful to the very end. One commentator, he, he writes this description. He says, When we get to heaven, the greatest rewards may well be for the kind of Christians who persevered in situations like that in Philadelphia, who remain true to the Lord in extremely difficult situations. And they are given an open door and a crown that no one can take away. Still, they can lose it by failing to hold fast to what they have. So the message begins and ends with perseverance, with overcoming any and all obstacles to the centrality of God and Christ in our lives. We will be vindicated, folks. Maybe not on this earth, but we will be vindicated one day when we get to heaven. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are citizens of heaven, and we need to keep our perspective on heaven, not on the things of this world that will distract us from the the task that the Lord has given to us. We need to remain faithful. We need to remain steadfast. Let me close with a story from the Mexico Olympics in in 1968. It was 7 o'clock in the evening on October the 20th, 1968, at the Mexico Olympics. City Olympic Stadium. It was beginning to to get dark and it had cooled down and the last of the Olympic marathon runners were being assisted away to the the first aid stations and over an hour earlier, Mamo Weldy of Ethiopia had charged across the finish line winning the 26 mile race. He was 385, this was a 385 yard race And he looked as strong and as vigorous as when he had started. But as the last few thousand spectators began preparing to leave, they heard police sirens and whistles through the gate entering the stadium. And their attention turned to that gate. A sole figure, wearing the colors of Tanzania, came limping into the stadium. His name was John Stephen Aquari. He was the last man to finish the marathon in 1968. His leg was bandaged. His leg was bloodied. He had taken a bad fall earlier in the race and dislocated his knee and severely damaged his shoulder. Now, all he could do was limp his way around the track. And the crowd initially all stood in silence, watching speechless, until one by one they all stood up and applauded as he completed that last lap. When he finally crossed the finish line, one man dared ask the question all were wondering. You're badly injured. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? And Aquari, with quiet dignity, made the statement. My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start this race. My country sent me to finish the race. God wants us to finish the race, New Life Church. He wants us to finish it well. Despite the problems that we face, despite the struggles that we, we endure, He wants us to persevere patiently. God wants us to remain faithful to the very end.
One of my favorite Christian authors is John Stott. He was an English Anglican priest who served at one church in London for 35 years. And in 2005, Time magazine ranked Stott among the 100 most influential people in the world. And a journalist from New York Times wrote once that if, if, sorry, if evangelicals could elect a pope, Stott is the person they would likely choose. But in 2011, he died. He was surrounded by family and close friends, and they were reading the Bible to him, and they were listening to Handel's Messiah when he peacefully passed away. But just before he passed away, another famous Christian author and a friend to John Stott, Oz Guinness, visited John Stott at his bedside three weeks before he died. After an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over many years, Os Guinness asked John Stott how he could pray for him. And lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, John Stott answered in a hoarse whisper, Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Spoken like a true Philadelphian Christian. Let us remain faithful to the very end. Father, we thank you for the Philadelphian church. We thank you for many other people that have been like the Philadelphian church. Thank you for the many witnesses surrounding us, Lord, who have endured to the very end and have finished the race, have finished the race well. Lord, we have one life to live. Help us to live this life well to your glory, Lord. Let us not waste the opportunities that you give us. Let us not cower away in fear. But let us boldly stand for you. Let us be faithful to the very end, despite persecutions, despite the oppositions that we face. And Lord, there's many ways that we can identify with this Philadelphian church. We are not a big church, Lord. We don't have many resources. There are a few of us in number. But Lord, we want to be a faithful church. Despite the, the oppositions that we face, despite the struggles that we face, we want to be faithful, Lord. We want to hear you say to us, well done, my good and faithful servants. I pray, Lord, that would be true of every single one of us sitting here this morning. That we would not just leave this room unaffected, but the Spirit of God, Lord, would provoke us, Lord, provoke us to be more and more faithful. That we would not deny you that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would persevere to the very end. Even in our homes, Lord, where we might be facing problems with our family situation, with our husband or our wife or even our children, Lord, help us to persevere to the very end. Even in our workplace, Lord, where we are facing troubles, Lord, with our boss, 
and our authorities. Help us to persevere to the very end. May they see Christ in us, despite the sufferings, despite the the oppositions, Lord. May we be faithful to the very end. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been unfaithful. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed. Forgive us, Lord, where we have possibly denied you. Lord, help us, Lord, to hold fast. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Thank you that you are a God who is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we be faithfully pursuing you and fulfilling all righteousness that you have saved us for. May we be a church, Lord, that is faithfully fulfilling the mission for which you have commanded us to do. For the sake of your great name, Lord, we pray this prayer. And for the joy of your people, we ask. In Jesus' precious name we pray.